Let's get real. Who wants to have another surface level conversation? Not us. I'm Samantha. And I'm Christian. Two friends having raw but truth-filled conversations about the messiness of life. So buckle up and don't be shy. Because yep, we're We're going going there. Hello, Going There Gals. We are excited to be back with you for another week and excited for a small little mini series that we're bringing to you for the month of February. So obviously the month of love. We wanted to talk a little bit about kind of not your average love story. And so we want to take the next four weeks to really talk and dive in to just some topics around love and relationships and intimacy and just might be unpacking some of our not our average stories around those topics. So with me today, I'm really excited. We have our friend Reb. So welcome. Hello. Thank you. Guys, <laughs> Reb is technically our, what, project, project manager? manager. Project yeah. manager for going there. And so Reb pretty much like provides us organization to the chaos of our ideas and doing this while being moms and employees and all the things. So she's great. (laughs) We're really appreciative. Samantha couldn't be on this interview today. And so we asked Reb to join us just in the conversation. And we also have my new friend, Greg. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Guys, we are diving in today talking about intimacy and, like I said, relationships and just really unpacking this idea of relationships and how we are all obviously created by God. He's a God of love. And so we in that desire, desire love for ourselves and to be loved. And so we wanted Greg to come on because he has an interesting story and perspective himself in kind of like all of this. So Greg, why don't you start us off there? Tell us about you. Tell us about just your life, your family, work, hobbies, like just let us get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, I was raised atheist in suburban DC. My dad was a senior executive for the federal government. I also was an atheist and I was probably 11 years old when I realized I was gay. And so we've kind of figured that Christians hate people like me. And then, of course, I then ended up meeting Jesus in college, and that changed everything. It was pretty crazy. But, you know, coming of age, I'm 50 years old now. And so I came of age in the early 1980s, right at the height of the AIDS epidemic, where gay sex was pretty much the fastest way to die, because there weren't yet protease inhibitors that can enable now a normal life with HIV. And so I was actually still a virgin when I became a Christian. And because of my convictions about, you know, what I understand the Bible to teach about sexuality and and marriage, you know, I've chosen to live celibate my whole life. I've never had a boyfriend. I've never had a girlfriend, never kissed, never held hands. I'm really just like, it's pretty rare in my demographic box. But I'm pastor at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, which is right next to Washington University across from Forest Park and Art Hill and all of that. I've been there. I started as an intern in 1994 and never left after 28 and a half years. Went from intern to study center director to assistant pastor, associate pastor, interim pastor, lead pastor. Also wrote a book recently called Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. That was with Zondervan a year ago. And for fun, my undergrad was in architecture at University of Virginia, where I became a Christian. And so that is still courses through my veins. You know, I love urban development. I wrote for years for the urbanist blog Next STL because I'm fascinated by cities and by neighborhoods and by how they work and structures and how people engage in them and how they form a community. And so in my free time, I'm more likely to be breaking into a construction site when nobody's looking just because I want to get some photos, but not really, but that's what I do for fun. Live with two cats, 
Sox and Leela, they may join us at any moment. You can never tell. They can be pretty loud, but live alone and really love that. Even though I'm an extrovert, I love having people over and I have friendships that have lasted over the decades. So I feel like I'm the rare person because I'm single, celibate, no plan to be anything other than single. And yet I feel like I've got a a profound experience of community that's really very satisfying. I love that as the cat's meow in the background. I just have to point that out. I love it. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Right on cue. (laughs) I was going to say, yes, I am thrilled for our listeners to hear more about your story because I'm sure even as you guys hear that right now, he just has such an interesting story. Even as you say that, you're like, I know this is rare that I am single, living alone as an extrovert, a gay Christian. I've chosen to live a celibate life. Can you talk to us a little bit just so people kind of understand your story? I've heard more of it. But tell us more. What did it look like becoming a Christian? How did you transition from being an atheist to then really saying, no, like, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I believe this. Because now you obviously live this life where the Bible is truth in your life. And you live as like, this is the supreme knowledge that like I'm going to live my life by. So walk us through how did you move from that to that? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I remember in high school, probably around 11th grade, we were assigned to write a paper on something controversial. And I I picked as controversial an issue as I could. And it got me asking all sorts of questions about whether human life had objective value. Thinking a billion years from now, when all the stars have gone out, no one will ever, ever have known that we even existed. Is there any real meaning or purpose to it? And asking those questions, I, I found myself kind of backed into a corner because I was realizing like, okay, if there is no God and there is no eternal life and there is no nothing and we're just here and we evolved this way and and we really just matter plus time plus chance and that's all we are, you can say, oh, but you're so unique, Greg, there's never been another one like you, but you can say that about a head of cabbage as well. They're all different. They're all unique. There's never been another one, but we can eat a head of a cabbage and not a head of a person. And so I was asking these kinds of questions and, you know, thinking through, if you see an elderly lady walking down the street and she needs help, you've got three options and you can either avert your gaze and hope she doesn't ask for help, or you can stop and help her, or you can shove her in front of a car. And if there is no moral order to the universe, then all of those are equally valid. And I could not live that. I was realizing I couldn't live atheism. And I I didn't realize that I was slipping down the slippery slope of the moral argument for the existence of God. But at the end of the day, I realized there has to be a God because if evil, if injustice exists, then that means justice has to exist. And for that to exist objectively, not just from my personal preference, there has to be a ground for that. And I figured it was the Judeo-Christian God, but I had never really heard the gospel. Or if I had, I didn't know if it applied to gay people who never went to church, you know? (laughs) So it was in college that the ministry of crew at the time, it was called Campus Crusade. They reached me and got me into a Bible study. And it was amazing because everything I was reading, I was like, this is true. This is so true. And the big surprise for me is I came to a point realizing that I wanted to be a Christian and realizing that what that meant, that Jesus died in my place so that he took hell for me. I expected becoming a Christian to increase my shame because gay men in particular, particularly of a certain age, I mean, we live in what Alan Downs is called a velvet rage of shame and self-loathing, you know, and we spend our lives trying to, to make ourselves lovable. 
because we're shamed and we're, we're alone. And so we could spend crazy hours at the gym building the body that'll make me lovable. I can try to build the wardrobe that'll make me lovable. I can try to look as young as I possibly can to make myself lovable. I can have the most amazing condominium, the most over-the-top cocktail party. Gay men are at the top of almost every field in a internal striving to make ourselves lovable in order to address the shame that we feel. And, and even when I would have said at one point that I don't really believe the Bible's sexual ethic. There's nothing wrong with my sexuality. Even then, I was belying that fact by the fact that I was working so hard to make myself lovable because I did feel shame, even though I didn't have a word to put it. It often just came out as anger. But the big surprise for me in coming to Jesus was actually the shame. He lifted it right off my shoulders and it became okay for me to not be young, well-dressed, hot. I still want all those things. But, you know, it became suddenly okay to just be Greg defects and all, which I expected becoming a Christian. I'd just be, I was signing up for a lifetime of shame and self-loathing, but the opposite happened because I realized Jesus doesn't just forgive my sin. He clothes me in his righteousness. And that means I have Jesus resume. I fed the 5,000. I raised Lazarus from the dead. I always did what pleased the father because that resume now has my name on it. There's nothing I'm going to do to embellish that kind of resume. And there's nothing I'm going to do to taint it. So, so that's sort of how I became a Christian. And the big surprise, if C.S. Lewis was surprised by joy, I was surprised by relief from shame. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah. I just, I absolutely love your story because it takes me to, I mean, all the time on this podcast and just in my life, it is amazing that when you grow in a relationship with Jesus, you understand that he is the complete fulfillment of like all things, that he fulfills us in a way that like no other relationship can, no other person, no other success, no other like thing. And I just love that obviously he revealed to you this thing that you're like, oh, I'm the, my whole life I'm striving for like love from people. I want to be lovable. And you see this story that you think from the very outside, you're like, oh, it's not going to accept me. It's not going to be good for me. I know what it says. And then you actually enter into that story of the gospel. And it's like, oh, this is actually fulfilling and meeting every single need I've ever wanted that I wanted to be. I'm striving to be lovable. And now I'm like completely loved. Yeah. Being loved is better than being lovable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Greg, I'm really grateful for your story. And even just I think what was revolutionary for me in my own just walk with Jesus and how I am a light of that to others is you presented to me this whole paradigm shift in going to care from cure. And so I just have seen myself after getting to come to know your story and yeah, just your wisdom and your teaching. Like I love my friends who have come just, I've come to see the shared human quality of shame in such a more gospel lens through your story. And as I've had friends come to me or, you know, just kind of come out with discovering this same sex attraction themselves to you, where I just have just seen myself go to so much more care and just seeing the shared humanity in all of us and seeing where Jesus comes into that. And yeah, I just have gotten to even see that in my own self, like where Jesus has changed my own heart. And there's so much balance of truth and grace there, but I'm just grateful for how much care is needed there. And I just know I'm a better friend and a better follower of Jesus because of it. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm really grateful for that. And I think you even too just really hit on a great revolutionary relief that comes with knowing Jesus of how we have this shared humanity and we have shame and we have all these feelings. And I think you even kind of touch on intimacy there and 
we all have this desire to be deeply known and to be deeply loved. And the gospel is that, and Jesus does show us that. But where are parts in the Bible, or as you were kind of coming to Christianity, were there any pieces that really stuck out to you and that you clung on to that might be helpful for some of our listeners to hear and to get to kind of click into their own stories as well? One thing that was very revolutionary for me was reading where Jesus, you know, he was teaching and his family showed up and they interrupted him and said, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And, you know, we don't understand how that would have been significant in the first century, but in any tribal society in any honor-based and shame-based society, you are honor-bound to drop everything for your family. If you're preaching the Sermon on the Mountain, somebody comes up and says, Mary wants to talk, you drop the Sermon on the Mountain, you go talk to Mary. It would have been considered very disrespectful otherwise. And Jesus said, you know, who are my father and mother and brothers, but you who obey my father in heaven. And what he did in that is he completely redefined family as being the church, as being those who are actually walking with Jesus together as the primary unit of intimacy on planet earth in his new creation. We moderns think of relationships and intimacy through a paradigm of personal self-fulfillment. We kind of have this sense that a relationship is supposed to make me feel personally fulfilled. And, and so long as this person is making me feel personally fulfilled, I want to invest in that relationship. And, and I, of course, am hoping that they're also feeling personally fulfilled through this relationship. But what happens is you get two people both trying to suck personal fulfillment out of each other. And it's what one counselor called two ticks and no dog. And we've all seen it. Most of us have been there. I've only read books about it. But what they had in the ancient world and in most of human history is we all lived in villages and the village was made up of your immediate family and your extended family because it was a tribal culture and the different families within the tribe would have different villages. And so you could never marry and you would still be surrounded by people who know you intimately, who you totally could not put on a front for because they'd see right through it because they've known you since you were a baby. And you're not going to try to construct this identity to make myself lovable because they're going to see right through that and know it's a crock. And so instead, what they had is you had the ability to be known all the way down by people who were completely committed to you at, at best, <laughs> at worst, we're all still sinners and there was horrible abuse as there is today. But you had all these cousins, you had your, your nephews and your nieces and all these people around you every day, all day where you had opportunities to both give and receive love continually and to be known. And when Jesus said that that's what the church is supposed to be, it's very different from modern notion of, of seeking intimacy as for personal self-fulfillment. I mean, marriage in the Bible is all about one sinner tying themselves forever to another sinner, knowing they're going to have to constantly forgive each other. And you have that opportunity to have what the gospel gives you is, is a, a cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance being known all the way down. And yet in coming together sexually, you're saying, I will never, ever leave you. I will never abandon you. I see you completely. I see you and I will never leave you until death do us part. It's all about giving and serving and, and ministering the gospel to one another through that acceptance and full disclosure and complete acceptance. And yet we tend to look to marriage and men are honestly worse than women at it. They look to marriage as their only relationship 
a lot of adult men really struggle to create friendships and maintain them. They don't have good skill at it. They don't learn it growing up. So very often, you know, the honeymoon is sort of the end of of all the male friendships. They just drift after that. And that's throwing onto one other person, all of our needs for human intimacy and relationship, which nobody can fulfill. Best case scenario, you're not marrying Jesus. You're not. It will always disappoint on some level. It can also be very fulfilling, but it's because you're not looking for fulfillment. (laughs) You're looking for somebody to serve who's serving you back. But seeing the church then as this location where I have obligations and duties to my siblings in Jesus. If they need a ride to the airport, I take off work and give them a ride if I have to. You know, if their roof blows off their house, I go over there and try to help them collect all their stuff and get a tarp up. You know, knowing that that's what family is required to do, family defends each other. They call each other out in private, but in public, they defend each other's honor. You know, you've got to have somebody who knows when your plane is landing. And what Jesus gives us is siblings, sisters and brothers alike. And the thing about a sibling is they know what you look like when you wake up in the morning. They kind of know what you smell like at the end of the day. They, they know your foibles and your weaknesses. And the gospel enables us within God's family to have that full disclosure and complete acceptance. And so for me, I've got all of these brothers and sisters who mean a huge amount to me and who some of them know everything about me. <laughs> some of us that have just kind of thrown it all out there, but the gospel enables me to do that. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of, I've rambled, but that's no, kind of where that's I'm so thinking. That's so good. So I've heard you talk about this idea of like, for sure, Western culture, but also just Christianity now really elevates this idea of marriage. And I think as we sit here in February, everyone's like, you know, these single people are like, I'm desiring to get married. And we all think of intimacy as you would in a marriage that I want to be intimately known, intimately loved, and I accomplish that through a marriage. So talk to us like you are flipping the script on that. I love hearing you talk about this, but what does then you have chosen to live a celibate life. You know, some people would be like, oh, poor Greg. You know, some people would probably think that, like, you're never going to have intimacy in your life. But like, how do you respond to that? But then also talk to us, like, what does intimacy look like for you then? Because obviously you would argue, no, I have a very fulfilled, intimate, like a lot of intimate relationships. Yeah, it's it's great. You know, so I always go back to what Jesus said when he talked about being celibate for the sake of the kingdom, to be single for the sake of eunuchs for the kingdom. And how he said that those of you who can do that should do that. He prioritized that. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that the man who marries the virgin does well and the man who does not marry does better. And so, you know, I think we have in the church have often so focused everything on family ministries and family ministry is, I mean, it's one of my church's core ministries, you know, is discipling our children together to follow Jesus. But when we paint a model where the Christian life looks like getting engaged, marrying, having a couple kids, and that's the ideal, then we're actually reversing what the Bible says, which is for those who can be celibate should be, you know, we should be telling our our youth group, she shouldn't be praying for your future husband. That's what we did back in the purity movement. You should instead be asking God, God, do you want me to serve you in singleness or in marriage? And then start serving God and seeking him and see what develops because he's sovereign. In terms of actually then how do you find as a single person, how do you actually find intimacy? 
I can describe what it's looked like for me. I can't make my experience the objective norm. I mean, historically, most Christians who have felt called to singleness have lived in a monastery or, or in a convent, you know, <laughs> and they were called each other brothers and sisters because it was a family model in the kingdom. But for me, I have one brother who's one of the deacons in my church who I've known him for 23 years, thereabout. For the last 17 years or so, we've grabbed cocktails together every Thursday night. We've vacationed together, often with a group. Every January, we go someplace warm that's not like misery for a week or two. He knows everything about me. He's my best friend. And I've got two, him and one other brother where we've kind of decided we're not leaving St. Louis without clear divine direction because someday we're going to carry each other to our graves. You know, that's just part of life together. And I've got one family that moved to St. Louis to be involved in my life and ministry 20 years ago. And I've been in their house so many hundreds of times. I have refrigerator rights in their house. And what that is, it's the true test of whether your family is whether you have to ask permission to open their refrigerator and get something out. I don't have to ask permission. I just go in there and grab a beer and there's nothing, no problem there. But, you know, I've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in their home and help them, you know, raise their son and just always been involved in their lives. There's another elder at my church that we have been getting together since 2002 for coffee on Thursday mornings. And, you know, he gets like my covenant eyes report to keep me off of porn and I pray for his family and we pray for each other. And yeah, doing that Thursdays for 20 years now, that's what it looks like for me. And I, you know, just having that web of brother sister, brother, brother type relationships with people who are long-term because as single adults, it's very hard in the secular West and particularly in the United States, it's very hard to be single and young because people are so transient. People move for jobs. They move for school. I'd rather just stay put because it's really hard to build community, particularly as a young person when people are so transient. And yet I'm in a college town next to a university down the street from another college with a seminary around the corner. And and so we've, we've certainly seen a lot of people move away and whatnot, but there are those of us who are committed to, no, we're going to be community here. There'll be those who pass through and they're part of the family for that season. But I've counseled married couples who don't have a two or three hour uninterrupted adult conversation every every week. And I've had that for 20 years. And so sometimes I feel like I have more intimacies than some of my, my married friends who, I mean, they may have sexual intimacy and they may have somebody who you know knows what they look like without their clothes on, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have intimacy. And I've always said that if I had the choice of being lonely in a marriage or lonely and single, I would take lonely and single any day because it's hard otherwise. But I feel like it's been a blessing that God's given me this opportunity and I've got my guest bedroom that enables me to offer hospitality as people are going through town, got the big dining room so I can feed people and, you know, really build that community. Yeah, I think I can even relate with what you're saying a bit, Greg. I'm 27 and single, so I'm I'm young and in my 20s and everything. But I think there is such a tension between all the things that we're talking about or even in maybe even a, a different tension between culture and the church right now with marriage and trends and everything. But I think the tension is with being single. Yeah, I think it's kind of this like there is such space to have 
these different kind of relationships that are deep. And there is such joy in getting to be the friend that gets to show up for your friend's kids' sporting events or, you know, to be there for their marriage or, you know, those different life stages. And those things are fun and there is such joy in that. And there also is this other side that's really hard about that. There is such a loneliness, like you were saying, Greg, because I think it's, I don't know, for me, I've just seen, I think it's kind of my like groaning too deep for words sometimes, like kind of in in Romans 8, right? Where there's like all of us, no matter what our relationship status is or however we are finding relationships with other people, just being a human in a broken world, we're going to have an ache that's deeper for words to explain because we know that that hope and that thing that's going to fulfill it is Jesus. And so I just have come to see that in my own experience more recently as I'm shifting into the friends are now married and now they're having kids. It's kind of that like, okay, so now there's one more person taking priority over me. And and that can be really hard. But I think, too, what it's kind of shown me is, for all of us, my deepest desire is to be in union with God. And I see where, like, you know, when sin entered the world and we see the fall of man, you know, we see where we have been separated from God. And our desire is to be in union with Him and to be in communion with Him. And what a gift He's given us in Jesus in that while, you know, like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now we get to have access to God, our Father, and we get to be in communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And going back to Romans 8, like if we hope for the things we do not see, then we wait eagerly for it with patience. And so, yeah, I think that that's kind of been a new thing for me recently is just seeing that relational loneliness and ache being in the season I am. But also there's, there is a gift in it because God doesn't withhold good from any of his children. And so, yeah, I think that I can kind of maybe similar things, but we can't speak the script for everybody, but from similar little life stages and stuff relate to some of those things you were saying there. Yeah, I want to even go back to say, like, just like put the microphone back on what you said earlier, Greg, because I think if people really listen to what you said, like instead of these youth groups, you know, instead of encouraging youth groups to be praying, like, let's pray for our like future spouse. It's actually no, like if we are called first, like we all talk about, like our identity first is as a child of God. You know, when someone asks, who are you? I'm like, I'm Christian. I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I'm blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, first and foremost, I'm a follower of Christ. And if so, truly if that's my identity, then really I should be actually asking like, no, God, like, am I going to serve you best getting married or staying single? Or how am I going to serve you best? And if that includes marriage, awesome. What a gift. But if that's also being single, then that's like what you've called me to. And I think in that way, like what you're kind of talking about, Rev, is like there have been plenty of times that I've either had you know, my husband and I will talk like, oh, we could see how, you know, marriages that are not built around the foundation of being unified in Christ. I'm like, gosh, if I, you know, even my husband and I in our brokenness, you know, we'll get in an argument. And I'm like, I think you're like trying to make me like the thing. Like, I'm like, you're acting like I can't fail. And I'm like, I'm a broken human. And that was like the story of our dating life. But it's so humbling when you're like, no, no person's ever going to fulfill you. So actually, like being married could even almost be like a distraction. Obviously, there's so many great things about marriage and can bring us so much closer to Jesus and be a beautiful example of our like relationship with him here on earth. But it is not perfect and it can't be the ultimate thing. And I think, like you said, there's so many good things that come from like family ministries and children's ministries and churches. But that also is maybe a way that the church can maybe grow or at least grow in their understanding of a perspective of like, are we putting marriage at the ultimate? And are we sharing a message that maybe actually is kind of confusing? Where like, that may not be the story for people. It may not be the story that God has written for people. And so let's have a perspective that kind of entertains or thinks through that too. Yeah. And anybody who is single 
wants to be able to look at the leadership of the church and see single adults in the leadership of the church. And particularly for, for gay people who follow Jesus, they need to be able to walk into a church and see that there are straight people who are walking out celibacy faithfully in response to Jesus' call as well. And when they can see that, then they can say, oh, maybe I can do this, you know, <laughs> if there are other people doing it and it's not just me. But, you know, it does get into those issues of, of our core identity. We all are going to suffer in this life. Jesus promised it, that this life doesn't really fulfill. It points to the one who fulfills. And the day will come when he will fulfill us completely. But right now we see through a glass darkly. We know God, but we don't know him as much as we'd like to. And, you know, one thing to think about, particularly if you're kind of wrestling with where you are with God, is every other identity you have is going to judge you and destroy you ultimately. It's going to disappoint at the very best. It's probably going to judge you when you fail. And it will not be able to deliver you from death. If I say my core identity is, is as a gay man, then that identity is not going to forgive me when I fail. When I grow old, older, <laughs> you know, when I don't have the body, when I don't have you know, whatever it is, it's going to judge me. It's going to condemn me because I will have failed. If your identity is a successful businesswoman and then you lose your job. That identity will not forgive you when you fail. Whatever you build your life on other than God is ultimately going to judge you when you fail. And what I see in Jesus is an identity that even death can't take away from me. It's an identity that forgives me every time I fail, that tells me I should expect to fail. And he'll pick me up and wash me off and set me on my feet again in community with his people. And, you know, it's, it's an identity that nothing can take away from me. No suffering, no sorrow, no loss, no challenge. Marriage and singleness are both difficult. When your body, you know, was made to have children and you don't have that. I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge loss. You can't quantify what that feels like. But I've just found a lot of joy even without the one companion. You know, we, we talk about the special someone and it's just the most awful thing in the world because uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of special people and there should be all sorts of special someones in your life. And you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket because one person can never be your community. It, it just won't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what would you say to the person who is just like not, you know, their desire to be married or their desire to, yeah, just be in a relationship is not getting met. But I think right there, I mean, I think you just answered that of like, ultimately, we have to hold our identity as a child of God and a follower of him and a servant for him and one who's going to do work for like the kingdom ultimately above anything else. You know, I can be a great wife. I can be a great friend. I can be a great mother. But like, ultimately, my biggest identity is found in that. And if it's not, people are going to fail us and relationships are going to fail us. So that's, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so yeah and I think we've yeah. kind of like tied all the pieces together. I feel like, you know, starting with even just recognizing that in our identity as humans, we have all of these shame. We have shame, we have guilt, we have all of these insecurities. And then we couple that with all of the desires that we have. And a lot of those, you know, they come from just like the natural design God has given us. They're not altogether bad. You know, they're not altogether good, but like we have desires and we have insecurities. And I think even just, you know, like you were just saying too, of like, 
there's such a core question of what you're placing your identity in. And I read a book recently by Brennan Manning, and it just, it was so beautiful. And it was just saying how like your naked, exposed self belongs in the presence of Jesus. And like, that's like where it belongs. And that was just so freeing for me to think like, how beautiful of a picture of that, that there's a safe place to belong. And that so much is just the component of grace. And like, it's not so much of what I'm doing, but just who I am because of who he is. And so, yeah, there, I just, I think that that was just such a great picture for me. And even as you were kind of, you know, talking about with identity and there are things that we're going to want on this side of heaven. And so maybe as a little thing of, you kind of shared some, but maybe you could share some encouragements too with that of, you know, for the person who is still waiting on a, you know, relationship or they're longing for that intimacy, like what are some encouragements maybe that you have for that person and and how they kind of navigate those things? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say the locus, the location for which God designed us to have this experience of family in Christ is the church. That's should be kind of priority one in terms of developing relationships with with men and women within the church, where there is a level, an appropriate level of being known and giving and receiving love. That would be, you know, my first priority and try to invest in people older and younger and not just your same age and stage of life, because you need fathers and mothers in Christ as well as children in Christ and siblings. That's how family works. Try to serve. Often, you know, we used to say back when there were phone lines that the phone line goes both ways. And so you can't wait for community to be given you. You've got to work for it. And that means serving people and loving people and serving with people is another context in which to build relationships. But at the same point, you know, I think back to the first Gentile convert. The first Gentile convert was not Cornelius. It was actually the the Ethiopian eunuch. He was a single man. He had been castrated as a eunuch. Probably his entire genitalia had been removed as a desert eunuch typically was. So he could not become Jewish even if he wanted to because he couldn't be circumcised as a man. He's on his way to the temple. He's the number two ruler in this African kingdom, serving a warrior queen called uh, Amantere, I think. And he's probably six feet tall, surrounded by five feet tall Jewish guys. He's the only black skinned person present. They're all olive skinned. He's obviously not from around there. He's obviously a Gentile. If they know he's a eunuch, he's wanting to go to the temple. They wouldn't have let him in because as a Gentile, particularly as one who had been emasculated, he wouldn't be allowed in the temple courts. And so he's walking away, heading back to Africa when Philip is told, hey, dropped out of the sky out of the place and said, hey, you just wait here. And this guy comes, he's reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Finally, this Jewish disciple catches up with him, running alongside his chariot, start having a conversation. He's asking, hey, you know, is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And and so then he hears the gospel, he becomes a Christian. He becomes the father of the Gentile church. What kind of God would choose a single person? to be the father of the Gentile church, an infertile person to be father of the Gentile church. And it was so awkward and unexpected. He even had to recommend his own baptism. Like, here's some water. Could I get baptized? <laughs> because they, they weren't sure what to do with him because it had never happened before. And it's interesting because just three chapters 
after Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56, God says, let not the foreigner, you know, abandon hope. Let not the eunuch say, I am but a dry twig because I will give you a name in my house, a memorial in a name, a vadyashem in my house that is greater than many sons and daughters. And I have to think he had been looking for that. And he found that then in Jesus in becoming the father of the Gentile church. This is the kind of God we have that delights in making the barren person the father of many and delights in making the single person. Uh, you know, the Bible says more of the children of, of she who is barren than of she who has a child. Because the reality is if you're in spiritual family, if you're there and the biggest part of it is just being there, then you're going to find that you're watching a lot of people's kids and helping disciple a lot of people's kids. And I'm at a point where I've been in the same church for 28 years. And so I have a doctor, a medical doctor in my church. And I was there when she was baptized as an infant. And I was one of the members in a Presbyterian church taking that vow to support the parents in the nurture and discipleship of this child. And I'm like, and now she's a doctor and still in my church. She came back to St. Louis. Like it's just being able to see that is something that comes when you're immersed in community for the long haul. And it's something that I, I would wish on everybody. And what a beautiful picture of just our God who created us meeting our needs in the most unexpected ways. I mean, that is maybe not how he imagined it, maybe not how you imagined your life in all of your needs being met, but ultimately finding that fulfillment and just complete like being known, being loved by literally the person who created you, which is just like beautiful and amazing. So that's awesome. Greg, we are so appreciative of your time. We didn't get to talk tons about your book, but guys, we read this as a staff team and I absolutely loved it. That's kind of what began this conversation a while ago. And so if you're interested in reading that, you can for sure find it on Amazon. Are there better places that they should go to purchase that book, Greg? Yep. It's actually pretty cheap on Amazon. So go for it. Yeah. Uh, it's called Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. Yeah, it's a great resource and just sparked a tons of good conversation. I think Reb and I were at the same like discussion table multiple times. So thank you just for your wisdom today. Thank you for just sharing your story and just being open and honest and truthful about just your experiences of what God has taught you. So thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Christian. Thanks, Reb. Hey, thanks for going there with us. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to follow along with us at Going There, the podcast. And it also means so much to us if you subscribe to our podcast and shared it with a friend. Talk to you soon. Bye.